Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon fed the latest and the greatest of emergency medicine. We are just trying to keep you guys up in literature, and to do that, well, we spoon feed it to you. Now, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber, and so will not be receiving the full Journal Feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, all good articles. But if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. Where remember, we never want money to be a barrier to better patient care. So if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, just get in touch. We'll help you out. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by our authors, Aaron Lacey, Samuel Rulo, Amanda Matthews, and Clay Smith. All right, so the first article from Monday wasn't actually an article. It was really just a list of the top articles that we've covered from 2023. Now, every year, I'm not exactly sure what to do with this post because we do do it every year. But this year, I thought I'd address it a little bit more than last year, which was to say I didn't address it at all last year. This year, I think I'm going to do a single sentence rapid review takeaway from all of our top pick articles. This should give you non-members a little bit of a taste about how smart we're keeping the rest of you guys, because you probably missed some of them. All right, let's get started. VL, it's better than DL. Just deal with it, based on the device RCT, essentially. Zero and two-hour troponin protocols save time, and they're safe. Just think about it. Transfuse to above 7 grams per deciliter of a hemoglobin levels, even if a patient is actively having a STEMI. Then we do a shout out to the AHA's guidelines on poisonings. This is a very valuable article and a must-know paper. Then you can give nitrates and right ventricular infarcts. The fear is really quite unfounded, unfortunately. Actually, fortunately. Then the Clover's trial. A little or a lot of fluids before starting pressors, it's pretty much the same. So you might as well give a little. Then the Accord RCT. Piperacillin tazobactam causes less neurological secondary effects than cefepine, so careful which agent you choose for pseudomonal coverage. After that, using the right-sized BP cuff it really matters if you want an accurate blood pressure. Then 10 milligrams of dexamethasone is just as good as giving 20 when treating COVID. After that, ASEP updates about some stroke policies. You got to keep up with it. And while we're keeping up with that, the AHA also released SAH guidelines. So keep up to date with that as well. Then have you heard of GRACE-3? Never fear a complaint of vertigo ever again. After that, back to stroke. No more weird dosing when you're thrombolizing if you just use tenecteplase, which is not inferior to alteplase if you look at the TRACE-2 RCT. Then, please guys, just don't give opioids for back pain, except for maybe ultra-short courses. Then, don't put the fingernail back where you found it if you're repairing a nail bed. It's not better results, and it's more infections. After that, infants need a lot of propofol. Then, viruses lower the procalcitonin levels of little babies, even if they have bad infections. Then we saw an article about how nasal fentanyl might be pretty well magic for sickle cell kids, so it should be a practice you might want to use in your hospital. Then Amox is good enough compared to clavulin for pediatric sinusitis. We also saw an article about croup, which does indeed get better in a cold room. After that, you might want to transfuse children pre-hospital who have severe trauma. Then five days of UTI treatment might be enough for pediatric patients. Doxy, by the way, is safe in children. Yes, you heard me right. Doxy can be used even in little babies. CT is enough to clear a C-spine. Really, it's just fine. Don't always stress about a hypothermic baby if it's a healthy-looking baby. 
Boarding is bad, duh. 37 degrees Celsius isn't quite the real average body temperature. Patient mortality increases with a doctor's age. That's a scary one. Women leave the ER workforce earlier than men. There's room for improvement here, everybody. NRP also got some updates. We've got a really nice YouTube video on that on our page if you want to check it out. Post-arrest pan scans are surprisingly insightful. Wait, we don't want to kill Riboa just yet, but it might be headed in that direction. You need to know when to crack the chest of a child in severe trauma cases, and so read the updates on those guidelines. ASAP commented on mild TBI management and NSAIDs with OCPs cause more VTEs than either of them alone. And we're not sure what to do with isolated subsegmental PEs still, but most people are anticoagulating them. And that's it. And I bet that's the fastest you've heard about 30 articles reviewed to you in single sentences, which is a little bit much. You'd probably rather a little bit more detail. And to do that, you can just check out the blog or past podcasts. And then we skip to the fifth article, which is titled End Title Carbon Dioxide After Sodium Bicarbonate Infusion During Mechanical Ventilation or Ongoing Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. This is going to be the only original research paper this week. Interesting, interesting, interesting topic. I've heard vaguely about CO2 levels and how they can change if you're giving a patient bicarbonate, but really I haven't put much thought into it. This was interesting for me. Perhaps it bears a little bit more consideration, though, since bicarbonate can be converted to CO2 by things like carbonic anhydrase in our bodies. These authors prospectively looked at 33 adults who were receiving bicarbonate boluses. To get reliable CO2 levels, of course, they had to be intubated, though. So the two populations were, one, intubated patients who had severe acidosis, a pH of less than 7.1, and patients who were undergoing CPR with a pH less than 7. 25 patients from the first group and only 8 patients undergoing CPR. In all cases, the bicarbonate bolus was 1 to 1.5 milliequivalents per kg given over 3 minutes. And tidal CO2 levels were observed before starting the infusion and then for 20 minutes afterwards. To be considered to have increased, the entitled CO2 had to have gone up by at least 20%. And increase it certainly did. The entitled CO2 level doubled in all patients, from 21 to 41 millimeters of mercury. The largest increase was in the CPR patients, which increased more like 150% from 15 to 41 millimeters of mercury. It took only 17 seconds for the entitled CO2 to increase, and it peaked at 25 seconds. That entitled CO2 increase stayed increased for about 7 minutes, about twice as long as the infusion itself, and the duration of increase correlated with how much bicarb was given. This is interesting. This is actually really practical stuff. Even if they only recorded data from a very small number of patients, only eight patients undergoing CPR. I'll also point out that this was an emergency room study, which is excellent, but all bicarb infusions were given via central lines. So the Koreans who did this study are either really good with central access, or this is kind of a different kind of patient who already has central access by the time that you're doing this CPR or treating these patients. This could introduce some bias. I'm sure more people will study this in the future though and give us a slightly better idea of exactly what's going on and hopefully in larger study populations. From a practical standpoint, many people rightfully look at the entitled CO2 during cardiac arrest to get a measure of how well their patient is doing and even if they've obtained ROSC. 
Typically, the higher the CO2, essentially the better. This study would imply that giving bicarb would make these numbers less useful. You'll have to keep this in mind lest you have significant false hope just due to your bicarb infusion. In a spoonful, bicarb boluses really do increase end tidal CO2 levels by just about 100%. So if you're looking at end tidal CO2 levels, you better keep this in mind. Okay, that's it. That's our five articles. Let's do a quick review of everything we covered today. From the first article, it wasn't really an article, it was many articles. I just did a quick rapid review of the top picks from 2023 that we covered on the journal feed. And then finally, from the fifth article, bicarb infusions do indeed increase entitled CO2 levels, in fact, doubling them. Again, if you are hearing this, then you are not part of the member's feed, and so you missed three articles from this past week. Lots of recommendations and updates this week. Probably stuff you'll want summarized for you by people, well, like us. One was the AHA's recommendations on post-ROSC care. The second was ILCOR's updates on resuscitation. And then the 2023 updates to ACLS. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a little bite-sized nugget of space repetition. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and save lives, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.